Which women do we know will be good? It was like Katie Hopkins, Katie Hopkins, Katie Hopkins. We've been trying to get you for a year. No, I, yeah, we have. We've not. We're never. We're not often in the same place. Yeah, exactly. But we got you here now. So now, okay. here we are. Okay, we're ready. Are we speeding? Okay. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are rolling into another episode of the Candace Owens Show, and I am so excited about the guest that I have in today. Um, I first saw this person speaking in Palm Beach, Florida, and to this day, I say that the speech that was given remains the most impactful speech in my political career in terms of inspiring me um, uh, to really get concerned about American politics and the direction in which um, the American discourse is treading. And ironically, this person is not American to make me feel so patriotic. Katie Hopkins, <laughs> also known as the biggest bitch in Britain. <laughs> I know, it's quite rude. Quite it's rude. It's quite rude, given that I'm actually kind of small. You are quite small. Yeah, and so I got this kind of reputation for being a monster. And so when people meet me, they're always kind of disappointed by how tiny I am. Oh, that's really funny because when I met you, I met you and I was small. I was a small fish in a big pond. You were much, much bigger than me. And I always actually judge people by how they treated me then um, because some people were incredibly rude and dismissive and other people were so friendly and you were the nicest person in the entire world. Oh, thank you. You were I'm so nice. to be evil. You, you are supposed to be evil. You're blowing this for me, Candace. Yeah, and you actually gave just an incredible speech that really moved me. Um, and at this time, Brexit had not the, had not yet taken place. Mm. And you talked about sort of just the deterioration of your country over time. You served your country. I want to talk about, I want to start there and, and talk about why you were on American soil, you know, trying to get Americans to realize how important this fight was yeah. uh, for the values of their country. So I'd spent quite a bit of time, I guess, on the road years back now, warning Americans to not become like Britain, you know, do not fall as we have fallen. I was, we were, Britain is a long way down a dark road that I didn't want American to come anywhere near. And so I guess when you and I probably first made contact, it was way back then when I'd started warning people, don't become like Britain. And, and the kind of strangeness of that message is that I'm a massive patriot. I went through university and I was sponsored by the intelligence corps. My father says I must have got someone else's offer because I couldn't <laughs> have got that on my own. And then I went through the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst um, to become an officer in the British Army and was given a 35-year regular commission in the intelligence corps. So that was the plan, was 35 years intelligence corps serve my country. So I love my country. But to get to a point then when you're going to America to warn people not to become like my country is a kind of a journey. Um, and for various reasons, eventually I had to leave the army because I was also epileptic. I think I might be one of the first epileptics to make it through the Royal Military Academy. And uh, I've realized in my infinite wisdom as I've got older, uh, more degenerate and more tired that um, <laughs> actually an epileptic with a semi-automatic weapon might not have been... <laughs> My finest idea in the history of mankind. So I had to leave the military, which I think is my calling, and hence began fighting in a different way. So that fight was then in the media. I became somewhat known because I had worked for five years in Manhattan. I lived in the East Village, worked on Madison Avenue. I saw a really brilliant program over here called The Apprentice with Donald Trump. And so when I went back to the UK, I thought, well, I'll go on that show. And so I went on The British Apprentice. I got to the end and then fired uh, our equivalent of Donald Trump. 
little Lord Sugar, short man. Never, never work for a short person. It's one of my rules. So I <laughs> fired the guy that ran The Apprentice and then I became known. So I started fighting back for my country in the media. And that's, I guess, when our paths eventually crossed. Right. So what were you seeing happen uh, happening in, in the UK, in, in Britain, that made you go something? I feel like I'm losing mm. my country. What was mm. it? To start with, it was very on the outside of stuff. You know, I had an opinion on many things. And I think unlike other people who want to be liked, that's never really been an ambition of mine to we be liked. That. We share that <laughs> we lack do. of ambition in that category. <laughs> I was brought up by nuns. I don't mean I was in like some weird foster home brought up just by people who believed heavily in God. But I um, went to a, a Catholic school and was taught by nuns. And one of those nuns told me way back when that one thing you don't want to be is nice. Never use the word nice and you don't want to be nice. And I took Sister Bede at her word. And so through my early life, I always just said what I thought. I won't ever employ a fat person. I believe the majority of people are lazy. Not enough people work hard enough for what they want. Most people are spineless fools and won't front up to things. Um, you know, I had an opinion on pretty much everything, parent and child parking. I mean, really, most mothers are incredibly overweight. They need to walk a bit. Don't make them, <laughs> don't put them nearer to the supermarket front door. I mean, you know, obvious things, people on planes, fat people, they should be paying for themselves. I, I have to pay that. for my luggage check your own bingo wings in. I don't want to pay for those. <laughs> those were the sorts of opinions I started with. And from there, I became known as that woman that would say stuff to people's faces, like on a good morning breakfast sofa next to a fat lady saying, well, I won't employ you because you're fat and therefore you look lazy and that's not a look I want in my business. I became known as that. But as I learnt more, spent more time with people, People started coming to me about their stories, about truths of my country. I changed and things became much more political, much more serious and much more concerning mm. in the realisation that the list of things that you could say was getting smaller and smaller, mm. that there was an entire realm of things you weren't even allowed to touch on because it was unspoken and unsaid, and that actually the um, ability of Islam and a Muslim network to infiltrate all of the scaffolding, you know, if you imagine there's a structure of society, a scaffolding, all that scaffolding to be taken over and in the hands of Islam, when you start to see that happening, that's when I got very concerned. Mm. And that's why I started speaking out, like not becoming like us. You know, we in the UK have a Muslim police force. We have Muslim housing associations. Every mayoral position but two in the UK are held by Muslims. Muslims have infiltrated every level of society in the UK. And by 2030, Muslim births outnumber births to all others. And by 2040, um, I'm a minority in my own country. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. But of course, when diversity means no white people at all, or no people of any other faith at all, where is the diversity there? There is no diversity. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because we have a similar thing going on here yes. where, I mean, while it's not 
I wouldn't say a Muslim infiltration. We do have a leftist indoctrination infiltration at every single level. And the same thing happens. Suddenly you can't start critiquing certain things and they start saying this is not this is not politically correct enough. This is not politically correct enough. And you kind of earn these titles. I always say I, I it's like Pokemon got to catch them all. I've been called a racist, a sexist, a bigot, a, you know, a Nazi sympathizer. Crazy. Yes. Here we are. Prager you. Uh, apparently I'm, you know, they have me out there saying I support uh, Adolf Hitler, which I've never said. Um, but this is the sort of stuff if they do when you start saying things that you believe to be fundamentally true, even if you didn't, even if you didn't think they were true and it was your opinion, the censorship is worrisome, right? Yes. Like, if you, why, why can't you come out and say, I don't believe that people should be fat? And now they say, not only can you not say that, you need to have fat acceptance. You need to be a supporter of, of fat people, even though we know, especially in America, it's the number one killer. It's like saying you need to, you know, you need to love cancer cells. You need to go out there and say, like, everybody needs to try to get cancer. And that's sort of like, a weird spot for a culture to be in when you're advocating for people to do things that are going to harm themselves. Yes. I want to start on this fat thing with you because you did something that was absolutely fascinating. And for people that are not uh, <laughs> just listening to this and are watching it, we are going to throw up an image. Um, but if you're just listening to the podcast, um, Katie decided to uh, stand by her guns in a way uh, that I find to be absolutely incredible by gaining weight. Uh, how many pounds did you gain? In what span of time did you gain those pounds? Yes, yeah, so I, I I should preface this with I am really annoying, and uh, my annoying sort of streak is such that I will put my money where my mouth is. So and that that continues to this day. You know, I will show up places I'm not supposed to be. I will stay there and I will annoy people. It's the reason I'm in America right now is because I didn't really take no for an answer when I was told British people are Ebola and are no longer welcome in America. That's the reason I'm sat here right now is because I ignored that. But in terms of fat people, people always said, oh, you're so lucky to be skinny. Well, it's all very well you criticizing fat people. You know, my family are fat. Fat runs in our family. I've got fat bones. I've got fat genes. <laughs> Fat bones. No, is a I'm going to stick you on an X-ray. You pretty much haven't. You just ate your fridge. And so I decided. I went into a um, TV studio and said, "I know. I'll put on uh, so 55, 60 pounds in three months, and I'll lose it again in three months to prove that fat people are lazy." And they said, "Yes, done." And within two weeks, filming had started. At which point, I recognised this was a really terribly bad idea and um, I did think that maybe so for me that's sort of four stone in British money and I'm eight stone so half my body weight on half my body weight off and I thought in some brilliant Katie land that all of that weight would go on my boobs and I don't have boobs at the moment they're very small indeed for those that aren't watching this visually from a podcast perspective imagine some very small boobs <laughs> This podcast is going places we never thought it might go. Let's roll with it. <laughs> so I imagine putting four stone on my boobs and it would be terrific. And I could show them to people and generally waggle them about in public and maybe get things for free. <laughs> Anywho, what actually happened was that all of the weight went on from just at the top of my ribcage to just above my lady parts in a very unattractive and unseemly large bump that people mistook for maternity and pregnancy and my face ballooned to eight times its normal size and it's already quite large. So I became a spectacularly ugly individual with a humongous tumour looking like growth just below my tiny <laughs> boobs and I've all for, for trying to prove that fat people are lazy. Which indeed, I suppose I did. I just ate and ate and ate and ate and got fatter and fatter and fatter and more and more disappointed and depressed and 
loathing of my life. Right. The, I mean, I just can imagine like what that did to your mental because I'm I'm big into working out. And if I go a month without working out for, for any reason, like I had to get a surgery back in January, so I wasn't allowed to work out. And when I say I felt depressed and I can't imagine on top of that eating and mm. gaining weight, I mean, you must have just been emotionally on the brink. Yes. And I think that's, you know, I, I sort of trivialize it. But in many ways, actually, the learning of it was was brilliant because it... it the, the, the simple fact is I wasn't allowed to tell people what I was doing. And the thing I wanted most of all was an excuse. I wanted to say, oh, I'm doing this for a show. So, so it's not real. I'm not really fat. And of course, what does every fat person want? They want an excuse. So I was being just like them. I wanted to excuse it away, whether you call it, oh, it runs in my family or I've got big bones. I wanted to say I'm doing a TV show. So it's not really me. I'm not really fat. So I got that. I got how horrible it is to even try and get dressed. Like when women struggle with even some women to, to even leave their front door is a struggle because they don't feel good about themselves. Well, that's precisely where I was as well. And I think um, you see the world differently. So I remember walking past stores where before I would have run in, grab something because I like that stuff in there. You know, I'm not really big on spending ages buying clothes. So I would run in, grab it and out you go and maybe try it on in the store. You look at those stores when you're a fat person and there's no way you would go in that store and try stuff on because the mirror's right there in the middle of the store. People can look in and see you trying stuff on. You see the world completely differently. And so some of the learnings out of becoming a fat person were actually really not only distressing, but allowed me to be much more understanding that this thing is not is not great at all. Right. And actually the real message out of the programme um, was about trying to see that even if you do a little bit of exercise or can walk 10,000 steps or let's try and do this together, you'll feel better about yourself. Right, right. And eventually I was joined by a little army of, of women who also wanted to do this journey with me. We all started doing the walk together and all of them shifted a whole bunch of weight. And it was about doing it without a gym, without um, a nutrition list, without any fancy equipment or any extra help. It was just having a pair of sneakers and showing we can feel better about ourselves if we try. Right. And that's kind of, that's why the show was also so successful because it, it ended up being nothing about laughing at fat people. It wasn't that. It became much more about understanding that your world's a lot harder when you're also carrying that. We've got enough to deal, to deal with in our lives, right, without right. making life harder. Which is a truth. And, and you would true. think that that would be something that we would promote throughout society. I mean, I think I went online the other day and I saw a, a band, a, a, I mean, a, a brand, a sports brand, and they were, they had the model. She was clinically obese. I mean, mm. bigger than you were when you gained those pounds. She mm. mean, really clinically obese. You could see, you know, through the stretch pants you were making for her. No one, they, this is a size that even by selling the size, you know, I mean, you just see the dimples, the layers, the fat hang over her things. She was not active at all, but they wanted to basically say that their corporate message was that, you know, we're welcoming and we're accepting, even though, you know, clearly this is not a woman that is active. And I said to myself, I view being fat as I view being anorexic. I was anorexic um, uh, when I was uh, 18 years old and I was anorexic for four years, severely mm -hmm. anorexic. Um, you should not be promoting either. No. Both of these are unhealthy, but unhealthy. you would never see a society that says, be anorexic, anorexic acceptance, right? You say you need to get help when you see a girl with ribbon bones. She needs to get help. You know, they go after them in the press. She needs to get help. She's anorexic. She's not eating. But what, the opposite token, it's mm -hmm. all about 
make them feel better. Shame is a good ingredient. Yeah, I, I think it's true. I think it's also linked to, so in the UK, obviously we have socialized healthcare, the NHS. Mm. So in America, I suppose in some ways, if you have medical issues, those are uh, internalized. So the person is paying for them themselves. You have private healthcare often, people pay for their own healthcare issues. So in some ways I'd say in America, well, it's choice because you're gonna pay to fix it. Mm. In the UK as a taxpayer, I'm gonna pay for your choices. It's why I'm anti-socialized healthcare because I have to pay for choices other people make in their life and that's not actually something I want to do. Right. You're going to need new knees or a new hip because you've decided to eat your own fridge um, or 85 times the amount of food that you probably should have. I don't want to pay for your new hip. You, right. you go buy yourself a new hip. Uh, and that sounds hard, but actually it's just basic economic principles. 100%. Um, I also think there's a, you know, at the moment with everybody going around like crazies with these masks on, you see people who are clearly clinically obese with a mask on. And it reminds me of people that go into like a Starbucks or whatever and order um, a hot chocolate with skim milk. And then the cashier says, would you like um, cream? And they go, oh, yes, please. <laughs> That's what masks are on fat people. Right. They're the, the cream that you squirt on top when you've had skim milk. They right. think that one thing's going to save them and one thing isn't. Gonna, yeah, I, I totally that agree That mask is not going to save you from corona if you get it because you're massive. Right. That's 100%. And, and it's a real conversation. But no one's going to have that conversation. And I have I have it the whole time, which is why I'm always in trouble like you are. Um, <laughs> you're, just, you're just a few steps ahead of me on the yes, censorship. A, a few steps ahead of me. Yeah. But we're in the same category where it's just yes. having meaningful, honest discussions. And like I say, my favorite thing in the whole world, by the way, you know, to wrap up the fat discussion is when I'm at the gym and I see a fat person on a treadmill. I'm like, go you. You know what I mean? Like you're, I you're working out. I love it because you're, you're trying to do something to change your life positively. But when I see a fat person modeling on Instagram and saying fat acceptance, that makes me angry. I agree. But I would also say, you know, we're all assholes. And um, if I'm running and I'm running, I will deliberately try and run past someone <laughs> and I'll hold my breath and try not to look sweaty <laughs> just so that I look tougher than them. Right. So let's not forget also there's an undercurrent of being an asshole. Yeah, there is. <laughs> and I, I also deliver on that really right. rather well. I would say I do too. Yeah, it's important. How did you uh, get censored from Twitter? You've been censored quite a bit. Sometimes people, oh, I don't want to hear her speak. How do you get censored? Well, um, I suppose the sort of longer bit to this, and I'm going to do it in brief, is that because I became known, because I became then a very annoying person that did things like put on weight to prove fat people are lazy, I then ended up with columns in the national newspaper. I was a columnist for Mail Online. I had um, the show on radio, LBC radio show on a Sunday that was the most listened to radio show on a Sunday for commercial radio. So I became a kind of regular face and voice in the mainstream press. I was the mainstream kid. Um, but over time, as I became more aware of the truths of my country and others and traveling specifically with migrants across the Med or traveling to places other people wouldn't go, um, the jihadi capital of Europe, Belgium, I spent a week there uh, in a burqa uncovering some of what was going on there. I became that person and that person with a big audience had to be silenced. Mm because I was now going against many things in the establishment, certainly against the leftist Labour Party, the Muslim Council, the Board of Deputies, Jewish organisations. Big players were involved in having me removed. The chief rabbi was involved in having me removed from my Mail Online column. So, but one by one, I lost all of those things. I lost my column. I was removed from my radio show. Um, and eventually, 
go on a few years and we end up with 1.1 million followers on Twitter, you'll know how Twitter works. You end up with a much bigger following, but they can't be seen to follow you. So they stalk you via Google. Crazy. Um, and I became that person that couldn't be shut up. Mm. Um, and in some of my, my more recent uh, activities, I dressed up as a Black Lives Matter protester, which is essentially dressing like an asshole, looking like a vegan that you wouldn't want to sit next to at a wedding. I dressed as that lady and went to the Black Lives Matter protests. And, and that stuff on Twitter obviously flew. And that's why that was the point at which I was removed from the platform. Black Lives Matter. It's incredible how many people lost their platforms for speaking out against Black Lives Matter. I would have definitely been in that category yeah. had it not been for the fact that I'm black. Yes. So it's a bit trickier spot for them to, yes. to you know, censor me on the basis of my racist views. Yes. When I'm, and, and, and that's the tricky spot that I put the left in is they don't know quite how to stop me out where it's very easy. You've got blue eyes, blonde hair, and you're white. You're evil. I, I don't know how it would work if we if we did a swip a swapper or if I could become a black lady. If right. I was a black Katie Hopkins, I think everybody's like, oh my Jesus. I don't know what to do with this. Yeah, we thought 2020 was really shit, but this is a new level thing, like a black Katie Hopkins. <laughs> how are we going to yeah, shut her up? Exactly. So yeah, I think it just, you know, people ask me, well, why did you get banned from Twitter? And you can't go for a rational argument. No. There was never one. Well, being white. Yeah. So you only can say that you ended up with too much... Um, you know, influence right. ahead of a U.S. election. Trump had tweets me, retweeted me, you know, and, and last time he retweeted me, they took my PayPal. Uh, this time they took my account. You know, it's mm. some, they take something every time. Right. But I think what's weird probably for an American audience is just how you know about cancel culture, you know about people losing their jobs. But I guess for me in the U.K., things are more stark. You know, I, I feel very free still here in America. I... I feel emotional at American airports because I I love it here and I love what you have. Whereas in the UK, you know, I am now a target, certainly a physical target. I know you relate to that. Uh, certainly, I think it's become an acceptable view that a targeted attack on me physically would be welcomed and applauded. Um, you know, a couple of jihadis came to cut my head off. There was a plot to behead me in the UK that was foiled and those jihadis are now... Uh, in prison, but a team of men dressed in black came to my house um, late one evening and, and set my home up with panic alarms. I mean, it was quite exciting for a moment. Most of them were very muscular with very nice bottoms. And I was like, this is fantastic. <laughs> but it turned out some jihadis wanted to chop my head off. And they told me that uh, should someone come into my home, they didn't give me the details, I should run to the top floor of my house, shake this panic box, you know, and the police would come. Um, that plot was foiled. They, they're in prison, as I say. But then the British government went one further um, and funded a play called The Assassination of Katie Hopkins. We can probably get those graphics up. But, um, you know, so I think when you you become, when you have a play written about you that's The Assassination of Katie Hopkins after there's been a jihadi plot to behead you and they take all of your jobs, they came from my home uh, with litigation put together by religious communities, Muslim council and others, uh, so my family home had to be sold to get rid of the litigation against me. Uh, I now own nothing and have nothing. Um, and then they come for your children. So my children are reported to social services to try and have those removed from me. Um, so I think that that the story, I suppose, in the UK, that is the darkness, is mm. that when they come, it's not something flippant that is cancel culture. It is taking you to the point where I truly believe they will only stop 
when they find that you will swing from a tree. Mm -hmm. And so my fundamental commitment, and, and it helps to have children, is not to let them win that. Right. And so I will not swing from a tree. Right. Um, and so that's cancel culture. You're getting a sense of it here in America. But the darkness is far darker. Well, there's a quickening of it, I think, now in America. And as you're saying this, and I and I know what the argument is like, again, different countries, but you are correct that there is a, you know, a dominant Muslim structure. It's, it's shocking within the UK. Um, but also, I think here we're seeing the early seeds of a dominant Black Lives Matter culture. Yes, you are. Um, and that, I, I mean, obviously, it's especially trippy for me to see because I'm a part of the Black community, so I can operate under the radar. When I see what is allowed and sanctioned, the outward racism, chasing white people down in the streets, videos of people demanding in restaurants that they white people put up a fist and mm -hmm. say black power or get shouted down, uh, burning, looting businesses, and the sanctioning of it, meaning, you know, Target gets burned down, and as opposed to coming out and saying, this is wrong, the corporates decide to issue a statement saying, we understand, Yeah. right? And I saw uh, yesterday, I saw in the news, uh, it was just a video, of them going door to door in the suburbs, telling them to evacuate their homes because they were going to burn them down, um, you know. And all of this is somehow being sanctioned by the leftist media, the institute, you know, the schools, the institutions, right? The, the, uh, and and I think to myself, what you're talking about could happen very quickly here. Yeah, yes, it, it, it unravels very quickly. Yes, it it is a sort of uh, we're da going down this sort of spectrum. It's almost like a linear scale. Right. So we may have it from the fact that we're being taken over by Islam. Yours is certainly a destabilization that's coming down the leftist Black Lives Matter route has right. provided the cover for that. Right. And as you rightly point out, you know, many people will have seen the footage of uh, the Black Lives Matter mob, mostly white individuals actually threatening mm. diners outside saying, raise your fist. And I think if people watch those videos again and observe, the actual problem there for me is not even so much the mob or the aggression of the mob. The problem for me is the white guy sat next to the the two with who raises his fist yeah. because what he's doing there he's not at all with black lives matter probably he's protecting himself mm -hmm. and the willingness of individuals to ally themselves with the thing that will hurt you in order to pre preserve your own safety for a limited period of time is the very thing that is our weakness right and of course, in the UK, we see that with our Jewish communities, leftist Jewish communities who ally themselves with the Muslim Council and Muslim infiltration, believing it will save them. And history has taught us, surely, that allying yourself with the thing that will harm you will not save you in the long term. That's correct. And so that gentleman, to me, in all of that footage and all of the mayhem, it's the gentleman with the moustache not only should white men who are overweight not have moustaches, I mean, that's clearly a ridiculous moustache, <laughs> but him raising his hand. And what, what, what puts the fire in my soul is that if I had only been there. Right. I said oh, that too. It happened where I live. Like, I was like, where was I? Why I wasn't I there? All I mean, I would, have, my... I would have stood in front of them. Wouldn't you? I would have, and I would have screamed, and I would have just been like, are you kidding me? For eating and being white. That was their crime. They wouldn't were eating just be, and wouldn't being white. Wouldn't you dream of being there? I, I just, I, I hope, I just hope it happens oh, it to will, me. it will, it yeah. will, it will come. I and hope the, I'm there. The main message to people, you know, is it's not fight. It's not people say, well, they would have had their teeth knocked out. It's not that, it's stand. stand. The minute that stand starts to happen to you, please stand. Because mm. when you stand, you will feel the power come to you. Mm -hmm. And even by standing, you are now 
a more dominant force. Right. So stand, and and that's it. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here now. It's about standing and keeping standing. So the minute I bounced in from cleansing myself of Britain in the Bahamas, uh, Barbados, actually, uh, I went straight to Skid Row and filmed in Skid Row because that's how we stand is, is go show people what they're going to get. Go show stuff that American journalists seem to be too idle to go show. Mm. Let's go show people what they're going to get if they vote Democrat. Right. And that's the fire, and that's the fire you have, and that's why so many people applaud you. I mean, I think on a daily basis, probably a lot of what you hear is attacks and people having a go at you or sending you unkindness or uh, trying to belittle you or do whatever to you. But what you should know and what you need to hear more strongly and what you deserve to hear is that you are fighting the good fight. And there's so many people that are so proud of everything you're doing. You're vital right now in this fight. Yeah. And and that's always what I hope for you is to be able to amplify how important you are. And I'm yeah. sure your audience feel that way about anyone you. Anyone that tells the truth, you know, and, 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 and that's, I mean, what you're talking about in terms of saying like the, the person that stands by, eventually they're going to come eat you too. Exactly. They just don't understand that. And, I, and I'm not sure if they do it because they think this will protect me, which might be true. Um, but that, that, that wasn't the only instance. This was a day of going to different restaurants and doing this. And another woman who refused to raise her fist at a restaurant mm -hmm. then gave an interview after uh, to the Washington Post and she she said the irony is she supports Black Lives Matter. She just said the manner that they came at her, she felt threatened, she felt unsafe, and she didn't feel that that was an appropriate thing to do. And they didn't care. They didn't ask and say, do you support Black Lives Matter? It was in this instant, you do this or you're going to get, you know, screamed at and shout down. And, and I think that has to be a wake-up call for her. What are you supporting? If you think that you're going to be safe at the end of the day, if you think that they care how, how you vote or who you support when they're burning and rioting your neighborhood, like there's something you can post that lets them know you're with them, they don't care. No. You know, we're talking about a, a radical group. You know, this is this Black Lives Matter Antifa. This is a form of, of jihadism. You're, you're throwing Molotov cocktails. What is that in America? So true. That's not a thing in America. Molotov cocktails have never been a thing in America. I and now they're a thing. They think they they think that, you know, that I've seen um, or heard in Minnesota uh, stories of people who are have these lawn, you have these lawn things that you can push into your lawn, don't you? Banners and things, right. you know, political banners. They have Black Lives Matter ones and they're putting them onto their lawn, not because they're with Black Lives Matter, but they're looking to indicate to people that they are with Black Lives Matter in order to try and protect their property. Right. Same for restaurants and, right. and various businesses that you just put it up. And, and hope I guess that the, the honest question there is, OK, so when things go wrong and people start attacking your home, who are you going to call? And not in a sort of Ghostbusters reference way, but <laughs> who are you going to call? Because you're going to call law enforcement, surely. Mm -hmm. So make a decision now. Are you with Black Lives Matter or are you with law enforcement? And when someone attacks your home, are you going to call Black Lives Matter for help, really? And so, you know, my next mission, I think, is probably headed towards Minnesota. There's a few lawn signs that I'll be switching over, I think, when I arrive there. <laughs> I love it. So it's coming. What exactly happened when you posed as a Black Lives Matter protester? Well, I mean, crazily enough, so I'm there in my, I, I use my Meghan Markle wig, actually, a wig I have for my Meghan Markle impressions just to well, annoy the left. But so I had that on, I had a very sad anorak on. And uh, one of, there's a lot of these sort of white allies that they shop in Whole Foods, they, you know, they, they definitely want to remain, they would never Brexit. And now they're going to, I'm white, I stand, what is it? I don't understand, but I stand. So you have to sympathise. <laughs> I'm so sorry for being white and being here. I, I, 
I don't understand, but look at me, I'm on my knee and I stand. George Floyd, George Floyd. They're that sort of ridiculous <laughs> level of white person. I mean, for God's sake, get a grip of your spine. So I went along and there was a few of those white people going, oh, I don't understand, but I, I apologise. <laughs> and one of them, actually, she had to go home, presumably violin lessons or Spanish lessons for her children with the maid. I don't know. She gave me her sign, which was perfect. So I had this sign that then said, I don't understand, but I stand. <laughs> so I was doing that. So I'm there being a Black Lives Matter protester watching this lot because I want to, un I genuinely there because I want to understand them because if you understand them, you can talk about them honestly. And that's all I ever want to do is talk honestly. And I can't bear people who sit in their lounge speaking to themselves, which is majority of male reporters or columnists or commentators from what I can see. Get out of your lounges, you spineless fools. Anyway, <laughs> so I'm there. She gives me my sign. I'm there. And there's signs going up with these Black Lives Matter guys, you know, big kind of tough looking guys. And there's my name on their sign saying, Katie Hopkins is the problem. Katie Hopkins, go get Katie Hopkins. So my name is on their signs because I'm kind of, you know, a target in the UK. And I'm there pretending to be this scared white person. <laughs> and anyhow, then it got out because after I'd cleared the area, I posted social media and it got out that I was there. They believed I was still amongst them. So the hunt started. <laughs> for my skin. <laughs> and I'm like on the train home watching this unfold. But I guess my learning was that uh, Black Lives Matter was a fundamentally flawed thing in the UK. Not only George Floyd was on the other side of the Atlantic, so let's not pretend he's our brother. To your point, he's not the second coming of Christ or Martin Luther King either. Um, and then it was funny because they all massed and tens of thousands of them massed. It was a well-mobilised event. But when they all got to where I was being a spineless white person apologising for being white, um, they didn't know what to do next. So they did the silence. They went on their knee. Great. And they said, say his name, George Floyd. Say his name, George Floyd. Say his name. And I thought, well, it's getting a little bit repetitive, darling, isn't it, at this point. <laughs> and then eventually they all went and looked around. And the truth of the Black Lives Matter movement is it doesn't know where it's going. Mm. They didn't know where they were going. And I mean that geographically. They didn't have a destination to march to. And I mean that ethereally, and I mean it in every way. They don't know where, where are you going? Where are you trying to get to? Because unless you know what your aim is, your what and your why, military principles, marvellous, um, you're not going anywhere. And that's why you're shouting at diners, eating a burger mm. on a restaurant, because you don't know where to channel it's, your energy. It's fun to throw ten temper tantrums, I right. imagine. But you're going in a circle. Right. And that was my learning that day, was watching them after they did their thing and they did the fist and they did the kneeling. They didn't know where to go next. Mm. And, um, and so I'd love, in a way, as a strategic coordinator for the campaign, I could be really effective because right. I could channel them quite efficiently. Right. I'd have to apologise for being white, obviously, but 100%. they need an aim. But I think one of the genius things about Black Lives Matter, of course, and I think it's a learning for Republicans everywhere, is call yourself something people can't possibly disagree with. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to run a campaign and I'm going to call it Water is Wet. Yes. Like, Water is wet. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. And isn't that a dream? Yes. Water is wet. Yeah, like, it just uses the name. Yes. So yeah, you just right. say something that's already true. Oxygen is important. Right. Yes. Oxygen is important. Say his name. Oxygen is important. <laughs> say his name. Oxygen is important. So say something that people have to fundamentally disagree with. And then 
I would do a physical reenactment, but I think cameras will kill me. Do something that's dramatic, so taking a knee. So if Republicans are going to go one better than Black Lives Matter, maybe we can prostrate ourselves on the ground. So when they're kneeling, we go lower. Right, huh? yeah, right. Huh? Just lay flat just, on the ground. I'm going to have to Jellyfish. I know this is going to be problematic. Going, <laughs> so right, so they will go on their knees, and then we just do this. <laughs> and we say, they say, water is wet. And, and then, that, say, see, that looks very important. Yeah, yeah. we lie down. Yeah. It looks it say, looks more important because if they're on their knees and we're just laying right. like flat flat yeah planking so, yeah so like go physically one lower than yeah. them and then you just go that's an important movement right, right and there. then if you want to do your oxygen one you could go subterranean so you right. dig a little trench <laughs> just keep going physically lower till you win this friggin' thing it's so foolish and people fall for this stuff oh I they mean, do. people fall for this stuff and and, and it's so funny to me how many people say they support Black Lives Matter and they've never visited the website and seen what their goals are, no. which have nothing to do with Black Lives. I mean, it's incredible. It's, they use the face of George Floyd. They use the face of Breonna Taylor. They use the face of a ton of other criminals, yeah. black criminals, which is amazing that yeah. black criminals are now like it's a it's a good thing. You have a lot of yeah. potential to score millions if you're a black criminal in a bizarre. If you just are a black criminal and you have a conversation with the police and you resist arrest and do criminal things while they're trying to arrest you, you can score millions for your family. It's so true. Isn't, isn't, it? isn't, that, isn't that a bizarre I, world we live in? Breaking news. If you don't want to be shot by the police, maybe do what they're asking you to do. And then that's controversial right I now. I know. I'm yeah. so racist yeah, for saying it's that. So I racist. How dare myself. you? It's hard. We can't do that. I would censor myself, but I've already been censored right. for everything. <laughs> So. And I say it all the time. It's I mean, it's, it's such the bigotry of low expectations. Like we can't listen. You know, we can't. We just cannot follow simple instructions to not further. But I mean, you, you can box a police officer like we saw with the Amar Arbery case where he was literally boxing a police officer, took the police officer's taser, fired at him and they still donated. Uh, it's so true. Family. I would love, you know, I would love to get these spineless white people. I'm picking on white people on purpose because I spent time with them at these protests. I would love to dress them in a police officer's uniform. Mm. Put them into, um, you know, parts of New York now or put them into parts of downtown now and say, right, see how you go. Mm. Try, try feeling. It's a feeling. Feel that fear. You go feel that fear with that uniform on, knowing that you're a target in the way that physically you're a target here to some extent. Certainly I'm a target in the UK um, just to show my face. Right. Uh, feel that fear. And feel that coursing through your body. Now, now start to speak about how you feel about the police. You know, and that yeah. is a sort of it, always we can be guilty of shouting a lot and repeating ourselves on our side. But the, the most powerful truth of everything we do is that it's to do with a feeling, mm -hmm. you know, and if you can help people to feel what it's like, like, like the Skid Row thing help people to feel what that's like to be on that pavement with all those people who have nothing and no hope and are out of their minds. You know, where are Black Lives Matter for these black people? Mm -hmm. You can just ask them the quiet questions. I agree. Because our message is actually a lot softer. And I also know that our side has a lot more humanity to it and a lot more caring. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a very lovely thing. Right. And I think Melania, actually, with her talk, at the convention, the RNC, she did a really nice job of that. She did. And I think that's the truth of our side. Mm -hmm. And perhaps we've lost a little bit of our way with that when we shout a lot. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And it, it, there, there is an element of compassion. I think we've become too, uh, too common for us to say facts don't care about your feelings. And I always say to conservatives, that, but the feelings don't care about your facts, right? So you need to make people feel something. You have to feel they it. Have to, you have to you know, be a little more and empathetic and it. compassionate. And, and then that's really how you get people to transform. Exactly. And it's one of my um, challenges um, to our side 
is, you know, if you're a speaker on the circuit, I'm, I'm really thinking more about middle-aged men here. If you're a speaker that's always being booked for speeches, you know, I, I, my challenge to you is, did you write that for the room? Did you did you think of something? Did you go and do something to feel it, to tell the room? Or are you giving them the same speech that you gave last week because you know you can get away with it? Mm -hmm. And my message to you then is be much better than that. Because lots of people would love the opportunity to speak and lots of people, I'd love to have more platforms. But if if you're going to be invested in and given the the spectacular privilege of speaking to a room, invest in that privilege. Mm -hmm. Tell them something new and don't repeat yourself. Right. You know, bring them something you've just seen or done. A different experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Make people feel something. Right. Yes. Yeah. So you were telling me earlier, which I had no idea, uh, that you were epileptic. epileptic. Yeah. Uh, how does that play into everything? I mean, I mean it's, it's just fa fascinating. I never knew this. I've known, you know, I've, I've followed your story quite a yes. bit, and I never knew that you had epilepsy. I know. It was my secret. Yes. So uh, one of my many secrets. Um, one is that I'm actually a man. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> people usually call me. So when people are being mean, obviously, you know, they're terribly mean about my nose and things. Like, I... I call myself the human sundial just right. to try and laugh back in their face, get called horse face, whatever. <laughs> so then when they're accusing me of being trans, because obviously that's funny if you're saying it about me, but obviously we have to respect it if you're actually trans. Right. I'm not, I'm not actually trans. I deviated off the epilepsy starting point. Didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> we're getting back there. We're, we're going to come round. Takes a while. <laughs> we're going to come back. Um, so I was born not with epilepsy, but by about 18, I was having fits. And but they were like pauses, like initial epilepsy is kind of weird. So you can have these things, petty mal, um, little bad in French. And um, and it's you just sort of you're there and then you pause, then you come back and people say, you're right. And yeah. You're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I got used to hiding it. Oh, I'm fine. I'm so fine. I wasn't fine. And I knew I wasn't fine. And then I was determined I was going to be in the military because I was going to fight for my country. And I knew you couldn't be epileptic and fight for your country. So I hid it. And I hid it in every single element of my life for, for 20 years. Wow. Every job I tried to get, I didn't tell anyone, Every even through the academy until I had to be removed. Um, because I knew it was a weakness and I wouldn't admit to a weakness that if I wasn't going to get a job, fine, no problem. But I didn't want to believe I might not get that job because I was epileptic. And so I would hide it. And it got to the point that my fits were extreme. So I was filming. I had my own show for a while, Katie Rules the World, which obviously would be a brilliant world. <laughs> <laughs> I even dressed as an air hostess and did some checking in of fat people and making them pay for their fat. Like it was a brilliant show. Anyway, <laughs> even when I was doing Katie Rules the World, my fits at night time were severe so I would my fits have broken my back um, they would dislocate my arms and that's why so I've had my arms um, reattached I'm kind of like a bit like Terminator these days but so I had them sewn back in but the, I dislocated one or both of my arms 45 times they would dislocate with my fits in the night you, go you mean to, seizures seizures mm. yeah then go to ER have your arms relocated and then present in the morning as if I was normal. And I lived that life for a very long time. And then it got to the point where a fit was going to get me. So that was the prognosis, a seizure, sorry. Uh, within two years, a seizure would end it. You know, there would be no more. And so every morning, actually, for 15 years or so, I would text my husband. My husband changed 
I had two husbands, but I would text my <laughs> husband and I'd say, I'm still here. And I text my mum, still here. Mm. And I do that every morning because um, and luckily I, I ended up getting a surgery. So there was a massive fit that sent me crashing to the floor in the middle of the traffic in London. And that's what gave me the courage to go and have surgery. And then that's what led to me being cured. Um, but because we have socialised healthcare, the wait list for my surgery was three years and a fit was supposed to get me in two. So what I'm trying to find for a, an amusing anecdote as to why socialised healthcare and queuing and rationing isn't so great. But anyway, the thing I wanted to show you, because it's a secret you don't know about me, right? Yes. How... Um, how grossed out are you? How easily do you vomit? Not very. No, okay, so virtually I'll borrow, nothing. I'm gonna after my I'm gonna get you to come here. Okay. So the idea is that you put a flat hand on here and then feel there. Oh my goodness. So now I'm gonna get you to push here and then feel can oh. you feel that move? <gasps> oh my goodness. That's is my that brain. Your brain. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So just I was just <gasps> I've never touched a brain before. <laughs> you have now. That is incredible. I mean, obviously, it's a massive brain because I'm a Republican. <laughs> so, like, if it was Democrat brain, oh it'd be gosh. like... Brrr. Yeah, so, wait, so I'm just going to describe that for people that are listening oh, yes. and not watching. Oh, yes, of course. It basically Sorry, it, it feels like a ditch. It's a ditch in her head. Uh, and it, It's like an egg, a boiled egg. Yes, it's a ditch. And then within that ditch, you can just feel her brain. So you can... It's It's mushy. Yeah, and then if I squeeze my stomach muscles, which is what I've I never was touched doing. a brain before, that was like yeah, now you have. That is so cool. So, right. they, so I'm assuming they couldn't replace the skull. Yes, and that's the really annoying thing. In fact, does this lift off? Is there something terrible <laughs> in there? Let's try it. I just I don't want it like it. You know, in terms of props and prayer you. Yeah. Oh. Oh look! Oh, I didn't know there were treats it's in there. It's a dead hamster. Yeah, and someone's apparently eating who, who all left, of the treats in the middle of this table. Who left a dead hamster <laughs> in the Candace Owen podcast? How inappropriate! A Anywho, this actually fits perfectly. Right. So this is what I need in life. A fascinator. I know yeah. this podcast has taken another yeah. peculiar turn, <laughs> but that's essentially the bit of skull. But right. we didn't line that up, did we? I'm no, just, I just, promise it. Just it really, bit, it does that's, fit. That's my skull that I'm missing. That is incredible. I know. So what? So they just normally, I guess. So how, how do you re, how do you replace a skull? No, you do. That's the point. So when they they go go in with a with a <laughs> circular saw, I, I I'm feeling I need to sort of message your podcast people listening. I feel like we no, should tell them. That was good. I feel like they need to go and find the link to watch this visually. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. I'm just feeling podcast people are going to miss something. Right. If they you're you're going to have to watch the YouTube. We're going to have yeah, to find this. Yeah, we're going to have to. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, so so they go in with a circular saw. They chop off this bit of my brain, skull. Right. And then I'm thinking like in the surgical room, they put it on a shelf, right? Like that. <laughs> okay, good. There's my skull. <laughs> then they went into my brain. They found the tumor thing. And they, um, which I blame my father for, because obviously, genetically, I'm deficient in many ways. And my patriarchy. father gave me this nose. Yeah. And he obviously gave me the brain tumor that led to my seizures that led to me being removed from the army. So I blame my father. That's <laughs> <laughs> my bid for a big amount of the will. Right. <laughs> so they went in, got the tumor out, threw it away. And then they very kindly got this off the shelf where maybe they had their cigarette break. I don't know. And they put it back in. Okay, good. So now we're good, right? They sewed it all up, brought me back to life, boom. But then uh, it went, in medical terms, I think we call it manky. Manky? Well, a little bit like, what would you call those 
items in there, the dead food. What was that? A bit off, a bit stale? Mm. Right. That's what bit went wonky. on. Bit wonky. Bit well, wonky, manky. <laughs> so that's what happened with my skull. I got meningitis, actually. Um, so I got meningitis as an infection. And so they had to open it all back up again, get the 52 staples off my head and get my bit of skull. And then they threw it away. They just threw it away. I know. They got some fairy liquid out. What do you call the stuff? Clorex? What do you yeah. What do you clean your dishes with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, Have you ever cleaned a dish? Yes, Candace? of course. Are you Are kidding you too me? Famous? Yeah. <laughs> Are you Not too anymore, famous? right? <laughs> I've been cancelled from everything. I now wash dishes. <laughs> so they went in with some Clorox and they hand sanitized my head and then they threw away my skull. They, they didn't even give it to you? Right. Did That's... I want that as an ashtray? Yes, yes. I did. <laughs> <laughs> so very rudely, socialized healthcare. They just chucked my skull in the bin. I mean, that would have been a really cool souvenir wouldn't to have. Be yes, because you could just bring it. I would not have brought it. I'd have worn it. Uh, I'd have worn it over my guess. female front bottom at wow. all times. So how long did this, like, take? Oh, yeah. From so start I was to finish at, of just... Of, of being in hospital, like, three months. Wow. And obviously the hair came off. Right. And um, I had no hair. I had 52 staples ear to ear. And um, three months later, I uh, went straight actually into my radio show. And um, I didn't know at the time if I would have the functioning call on words or anything to do radio, but right. but it, it came back. So the, they call it the deficit. I mean, medical people are weird. Fauci is a very good example of how weird medical people are. Not only is Fauci weird and medical, but he's also short. And as we referred to earlier, if it wasn't edited out, never, ever go near short people. Mm, got it. Fauci. So medical people are weird. but th So they call it the deficit. <laughs> Who said Republicans aren't funny? We're not editing any Christ, of this out. We are funny. I'm funny. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, they call it the deficit. So the deficit from this surgery was all the things that were really bloody annoying. I'm left-handed, and so they, that was a deficit. Left arm, left leg, uh, maybe sight and speech. And those things are kind of important to who I am, was. So I always say, and the, the deficit means you don't get that back. It means if the operation goes wrong, those are the things you lose, your ability to use your arm, your leg, your speech or your sight, because that's where the bit of brain was. And so I'd always made a thing with my husband, I'd rather not come back at all than come back missing those things. And I can still remember waking up in ICU and the first thing I can feel, I can, first thing I did was wiggle my left big toe and I could feel it. And the, they were kind of gathering around and doing that sort of faces they do, like you're half dead. And I was like, I can feel my big toe, I can feel it. Because in that hospital where I had this surgery, um, I can remember the upset of going to meetings before the surgery where everybody in that place uh, was dragging their leg, you know, dragging their left leg or their right leg. And, and I mean this respectfully to anybody with epilepsy or any parent of a child with epilepsy. But those hospitals can be the hospital of horrors mm. because you're looking at what your future might be like. And I'm I've always found epilepsy weird. It's one of the cruelest conditions. There's nothing, you don't see many charities raising money for epileptics because it's not a fluffy dog or a pretty donkey. Mm. It's an ugly and cruel condition. And the joy of the thing was that I think I 
think I'm one of the most successful surgeries they've had in that I came back normal, which wow. really obviously pissed off the left as well. <laughs> My last chance to silence me. We're going to get her. We're going to get yeah. her. She's still not swinging from the tree. Damn it. <laughs> Meningitis. Damn it. She's still going. They were so, so close. It was so close to having me. Yeah. They so close. They went, mm, and they could feel it. They were almost starting to. There's a song that they had when Thatcher was killed, right? She didn't kill. She died. The witch is dead, right? The, yeah. Did they really sing a song? A, that, yeah, that went to number one in the charts. The left were really impressed with themselves because they got the witch is dead trending. So that's the big plan for when I croak it. Mm. The big idea is that the witch is dead will trend. Yeah, but you failed. And I was like, yes, <laughs> she's back. But my point rather being, um, I got cured from my epilepsy. And actually, that's the reason now the joy of this thing is that I am... Um, I have this new life that I wasn't going to have. Mm. I'm on extra time already because this time wasn't supposed to be mine. And it means I can live utterly. I don't have things. I don't have a home. I can't have savings. They'll come for that. I don't have things. And also I don't have fear. And because of that, I'm probably one of the most free people on the planet, potentially, because the two things that limit people are the wish to preserve the things they have, so mm. a home or a job or a family or a wife or a husband, and the wish to preserve life. And I haven't got financial stuff anymore because I can't have it in the UK, and my life is already an additional extra. Mm. So, so I get supercharged, and so that's why... All of this is fun, and I think it's part of the reason I can find the funny a lot. Right. Because it's very freeing. Well, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I feel in many ways the same way, um, and I, I think humor is so important. And a lot of times you find in political space, people take themselves way too so, seriously. So seriously. Yeah, and I, I've had people that, like, hate. I'll make fun of someone genuinely making fun of them because yeah. it's funny, and people get super upset about it and just, like, how, how could you make I'm like, how can you go through life taking yourself so incredibly seriously when life, you know, life hands everybody just, you know, a bad uh, – a, a, a bad deck of cards and you have to be able to laugh yourself through it you've especially in politics you've got to especially in politics and we need to laugh more yeah. and that's kind of my ambition from here uh, I broke in here via Barbados by going through quarantine because I'm not allowed to be here so we're harboring a criminal just you're harboring clear. a criminal yeah, harboring yeah. A criminal. Okay. an Ebola ridden British woman <laughs> Uh, who's obviously a Nazi and a, a fascist and a sexist and many of those things. But I won't leave and I intend to cause as much uh, problem to the left as I can while I'm here. Um, and I intend to do it as well with a sense of fun because there is much to laugh at and with. We need to laugh at ourselves much more. We need to laugh at the things that threaten us like Black Lives Matter. You know, water is wet. Just okay. shout back at them. <laughs> Lie on the floor. Prostrate yourself more than they can kneel. And I think by humor, we we win. You know, humor is one of the most powerful tools that we have. Well, I, I, can, I can wrap by telling you, Katie, that I am an ally and I don't understand, but I stand <laughs> with you. Okay? <laughs> oh, my God. Never apologize for your blackness and I won't apologize for my I'm whiteness so either. I'm so sorry for being black and I don't understand, but I stand. <laughs> 
Um, so we actually wrap every episode by allowing you to leave a face message with the world. So you're going to look into this camera um, and just say what's on your heart. Like, you know, why, you know, why are you here? Uh, what, what do you believe in? <laughs> what is your why, point? Why are you here? Didn't, what is your damn how point? How are you here with half your skull missing? You know, just <laughs> leave it for our audience so they can understand. <laughs> on your mark, get set world, I give you Ms. Katie Hopkins. <laughs> so I think one of the things that's really important right now is the sense that people have never felt so lonely. People have never felt so un you know, on their own. You've been uninvited from things. You have family members not speaking to you, asked to find another synagogue, perhaps. Um, some of your own family are no longer wanting you to come to events. Uh, and I'm here to tell you that none of that's true. I'm here to tell you that you're not on your own. Uh, you aren't, you couldn't be less lonely because we are many and we are strong in number. And when we stand together and we roar, our voices really are heard. Um, and I can say this to you personally, if you're an American, is the reason I'm here in your country and I've broke into this country is because I need you. Because we are looking to you for hope. We need you to stand up for all that is bright and you are fighting for the light. And Europe looks to you for hope. And together, we will make a last stand for all that is right. And my final plea is that if you don't do that, if you don't stand and fight, I will come and find you. And I have a special set of skills. And I will take you down. And that is my promise to you. Do you know how much my husband's going to love that ending? He, it's just—it's one of his favorite. It's like one of his favorite movie quotes. <laughs> I have a special set of skills. <laughs> I do have a bloody special set of skills. Thank you guys for watching the latest episode of The Candace Owens Show. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As many of you guys already know, PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. I would really appreciate your support.